Good morning once again. We are currently involved in a series here at Calvary Elk Grove, which we've entitled The Battle for Truth. And in the course of this series, we have been studying the lie. You say, well, what does the lie have to do with the battle for truth? Everything. Everything. That's what we're battling. We're battling against the lies of the devil, trying to uphold the truth of Jesus Christ. But we have been studying the lie, and as we have said, it's not a lie, it's the lie, a very specific satanic lie, which the Bible talks about in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, and in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11. But it's a lie that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In fact, it's going to be the very lie that the Antichrist will use to deceive the world into believing. All who did not receive the love of God, the love of the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might be saved are going to be deceived into believing the satanic gospel of the Antichrist, what the Bible refers to as the lie. Now, we said that this lie was planted, if you will, in the Garden of Eden 6,000 years ago. And it has been growing and spreading over the earth for the last 6,000 years, and we have likened it now to a massive tree whose branches have extended throughout the face of the whole earth. In fact... It has filled the earth with a deadly fruit of false doctrine. And last time, a couple weeks ago actually, we looked at some of the ways the lie has branched out into the world, the different movements it has spawned, the religions and so on. And of course, we could spend years looking at all of them, but we just took a few of the more common ones. The New Age movement we looked at as being something the lie has spawned. Mormonism with the belief that we can ascend to godhood, become gods of our own planet someday. Scientology, very popular among the Hollywood types. Uh, sounds very deep, profound. They're into that stuff. The human potential movement. Uh, if you know anything about the human potential movement, one of the most um, well-known organizations along those lines would be uh, uh, Werner Erhardt's uh, EST, which stands for Erhardt Seminar Training. They're very big into the whole human potential movement, which is a movement that seeks to get you to look within yourself to find the strength to do anything. Corporations are really buying into this big time, and uh, it really is a part of the, the lie that Satan told Eve. We looked at Freemasonry. Now, there's many others we could have looked at. We just didn't have the time, but you get the idea. We could have looked at Christian science, and all the Eastern religions uh, have been born out of the lie, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on. Wicca is another element of the lie that we see today. I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. These groups are all separate, but they share a commonality at their core. And that is the lie that Satan gave to Adam and Eve that they bought into, and a lie that is, has spread throughout the whole earth. Now, if the influence of the lie was limited to just the non-Christian world around us, it would have been bad enough. But the reality is, the horrible reality, is that this lie is infiltrated into the church and is being embraced by, and I'm not overstating this, is being embraced by thousands of pastors and churches who are teaching it as biblical Christianity. And because of this, many in the church are departing from the faith once delivered to the saints as they embrace these Christianized doctrines of demons, the very thing that Paul the Apostle warned us against. He warned us to be on guard against this very thing. It's 1 Timothy 
Paul said, now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, the last days, the time just prior to Christ's return, some would depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. The word doctrine means teachings. You know that demons have doctrines, don't you? You know that demons are teachers. You say, well, what do they teach? They teach anyone who will listen, and there are plenty today who will listen. Of course, they don't call themselves demons, obviously. They're called ascended masters, uh, white masters out in the astral plane, uh, a message given to people who are in the occult through familiar spirits. There's all kinds of channels that demons will use to teach people their doctrines. What are their doctrines? The lie. The very lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now, here's the thing that we tried to point out last time. Paul says in the last times, in the end times, some in the church would depart from the faith, giving heed to these deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. But we said, though, that just because it says that they will depart from the faith doesn't necessarily mean they will depart from the church. See, that's the problem. If people would leave the church and embrace these things and get into Hinduism or get into uh, the New Age movement or some other thing, well, obviously we would be grieved by that, but at least we understand where they're coming from. The problem is when people embrace these things but stay in the church and they then try to Christianize them and pass them off as biblical Christianity. That's what's really dangerous. And that's what we're seeing today. It's just Christianized doctrines of demons. We are seeing these things taking place today in the Lord's house. The church of the living God, as Paul called it, which is supposed to be the pillar and ground of the truth. But it shouldn't surprise us because, again, we have been warned all over the New Testament about this. Paul in Acts chapter 20, in writing to the Ephesian elders, or excuse me, in speaking to the Ephesian elders, Luke writing it down for us, Paul said, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now he's talking about false prophets, false teachers, false shepherds. But also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul says, look, I know one thing for sure. After I go, the wolves are going to come in from the outside and devour the sheep. But from among your own brethren, from within, people will rise up speaking perverse things, things that contradict everything I've been teaching you. Therefore, Watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Listen to me. It's the responsibility of a good shepherd not only to lead and feed the flock, lead them by example and feed them faithfully on the word of God. Paul said, look, don't follow me unless I follow Christ, correct? Follow me because I follow Jesus. If a man is not following the Lord and what he's teaching, you shouldn't follow him. So it's my responsibility as a shepherd not only to lead you and feed you, but to watch and warn too. 
And I have been watching things entering into the church, doctrines, programs, and various things. And from time to time, I feel the necessity to warn you of these things. For a lot of people, it sounds divisive, it sounds negative, but I'm only doing the thing that Paul the Apostle admonished a group of pastors in Ephesus to do. He was talking to the Ephesian elders. They were pastors. And he said to them, look, as I have taught you faithfully the word of God for three years, I also warned you day and night with tears. You think this was a a big issue on Paul's mind? You bet it was. Look, truth is the only thing that promotes true unity. And if a church has embraced error, that church hasn't got true unity. And until that error is rooted out and gotten rid of, that church will never be healthy. It'll never be truly unified in the Lord's sight. So we need to, as shepherds, not only lead and feed the flock, but to watch and to warn you as well. Now, as I said last time, when it comes to exposing the doctrinal error that has entered into the church, it becomes necessary to name names and to quote the leaders in the church who have embraced and are promoting these false teachings. Not everybody I name in the course of this series is a false shepherd or a, a false you know, prophet or whatever. There are some brothers and sisters who really love the Lord, who are genuine Christians, who have embraced in a misguided way, have embraced some false teaching. They need to be corrected. But there are others in the church who are false prophets, false shepherds. They need to be seen for who they are, and they need to be shown the door. So if I name names, don't go, he's naming names. (laughs) Paul named names. I'm only doing what Paul did. I'm not Paul, but I want to be like Paul in the sense that I'm a good leader in the church. We're talking about the lie that's infiltrated into the church. The doctrinal cornerstone of the lie, as we've already studied, if if you're just new with us, get the CDs or you can always go to our website and, and listen to these messages for free. But the doctrinal cornerstone of the lie that Satan told Eve which has also become the doctrinal cornerstone of Hinduism, Mormonism, the New Age movement, and others, is that man is really God, or that he's evolving into Godhood. He just doesn't realize it. And that's why he needs to be enlightened, because enlightenment is the pathway to Godhood. And again, this this delusion was at the heart of the serpent's lie to Eve. Remember when Satan said to Eve, Eve, why don't you go ahead and eat that fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden? Didn't God say you shall eat of all the trees? Well, Eve said, the Lord said we shall eat of all the trees, but not the fruit of that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because the Lord said, in the day that we eat of the fruit of that tree, we will surely die. And what did Satan say? Eve, you won't surely die. God knows. In the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, your eyes will be open. What? You'll be enlightened. And you will become like God. That is the cornerstone of the lie. And it has become the cornerstone, the doctrinal cornerstone of the positive confession movement. In his book, The Seduction of Christianity, Dave Hunt quotes Casey Treat, who was a pastor of a megachurch in Seattle, Washington, called Christian Faith Center. 
And one of Casey's favorite verses to preach from is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God said, Let us make man in our image. Here's how Casey interprets what God meant by this. Now, he's standing in front of his congregation preaching. And he said, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost had a little conference. And they said, Let us make, an, let us make man an exact duplicate of us. So, I don't know about you, but that does turn my crank. An exact duplicate of God. Say it out loud. I'm an exact duplicate of God. Come on, say it again. Say it again. I'm an exact duplicate of God. Say it like you mean it. He's yelling now. I'm an exact duplicate of God. I'm an exact duplicate of God, even as his congregation is repeating after him. When God looks in the mirror, he sees me. When I look in the mirror, I see God. Oh, hallelujah. You know, sometimes people say to me when, when they're mad and want to put me down, you just think you're a little God. <laughs> Thank you. Hallelujah. You got that right. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Yep. Are you listening to me? He says, are you kids running around acting like gods? Why not? God told me to. Since I'm an exact duplicate of God, I'm going to act like God. End quote. Dave Hunt goes on to say, what seems most significant is the fact that only a few years ago, Christians would have gotten up and walked out on anyone who tried to suggest to them that they were gods. That no longer seems to be the case. Did anyone notice that Pastor Treat has taken a quantum leap from made in the image of God to an exact duplicate of God? Clearly, this is a lie whose time has come, end quote. You say, well, where do these folks in the positive confession movement get this kind of theology from? Well, Kenneth Copeland explains the reasoning behind the teaching. He said, and I'm quoting, you impart humanity into a child that's born of you because you are a human. You have imparted the nature of humanity into that born child. Well, God is God. He is spirit. And he has imparted himself in you when you were born again. Peter said it just as plain. He said, we are partakers of the divine nature. Now that nature was imparted, injected into your spirit man. And you have that imparted into you by God just the same as you imparted into your child the nature of humanity. Your child wasn't born a whale. It was born a human. Well, now, you don't have a human, do you? No, you are one. Well, you don't have a God in you. You are one. End quote. Earl Polk, another leader in the movement, says, and I quote, Just as dogs have puppies and cats have kittens, so God has little gods. Now, here's the mentality. When a dog has children, offspring, what, what does a dog have? Puppies, little dogs. When a cat has offspring, what does it have? It has kittens, little cats, right? When a human has offspring or children, what do they have? Little humans. So when God begets children, what does he have? Little gods. It's all clear, right? How do we miss it? I'll tell you how we missed it. It wasn't in the Bible. But that's the idea. You're children of God. When you accepted Jesus, as Peter said, the divine nature was placed in you. That means that you are little gods. 
Sorry, it does not mean that. But Paul goes on to say, until we comprehend that we are little gods and begin to act like little gods, we cannot manifest the kingdom of God on this earth. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't that how we got into this mess in the first place? Adam and Eve acting like little gods, doing what they thought was right instead of obeying what God really told them to do? That hasn't brought utopia to the earth, folks. That hasn't brought the kingdom of God. That robbed us from the kingdom of God. We had the kingdom of God on the earth until that point. God was in control. God was, was, was ruling over man. Man was in perfect fellowship with God. Then man rebelled. And that rebellion plunged the world into darkness and moral depravity. We were separated from God. And the result is all the mess we see around us today. That's why Paul admonished Timothy. He said, Timothy, as a young pastor, Timothy, preach the word, whether you feel like it or whether you don't, in season, out of season. Use it to reprove, correct, convince, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time is coming, guess what, it's here, when people in the church are not going to endure Sound doctrine, the Greek word is healthy teaching, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Paul warned us there was coming a time, and I believe he had this time in mind, the time just prior to Jesus' return, when the deception of the Antichrist, who is coming, he's not here yet, don't get me wrong, but the mystery of iniquity is already at work. The, the devil's already at work preparing the world to receive the Antichrist and the satanic gospel that he's going to bring. And he's already kind of preparing the world to receive this. And we see many people outside the church buying into the lie. But now the lie has come into the church and we have people, because of their own carnality and selfishness, who don't want to hear sound doctrine anymore, healthy teaching. They want to gather to themselves teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. How can I be rich? How can I be healthy? How can I have everything my heart desires? Remember last week I told you that, I said, look, have you ever heard the fable? When you were a kid, maybe your mom or dad or grandmother or somebody read to you like fairy tales and things, fables? We've all heard the story, the fable of the frog that became a prince. I've got an even bigger one. Paul warns us about it. How about the fable of the sinner who became God? Because that's exactly what we're being taught today in some churches. Folks, this is exactly what Paul the Apostle warned us about. He said just prior to the return of Christ, there would be an unprecedented worldwide deception that would cover the earth and affect even the church of Jesus Christ. And part of it would be that people in the church would turn away from good, healthy teaching, biblical teaching, and would be turned aside to teachers who would tell them what they want to hear because they have itching ears, and would be turned aside to fables. Folks, I don't know of a bigger fable than to teach that we, as children of God, are really little gods. To me, that's amazing. Isn't that the same lie that Satan fed Eve in the garden? 
When I say to you, the lie is infiltrated into the church, do you understand what I'm talking about? But this lie hasn't just touched those in the positive confession movement. It has infiltrated into other segments of the church. Rodney R. Romney, senior minister of Seattle's First Baptist Church, wrote a book titled, Journey to Inner Space, Finding God in Us. In the book he writes, and I'm quoting, to understand God is finally to realize one's own godhood. He goes on to say that Jesus was not God, but simply a man who knew the laws of God. Folks, that's Christian science. And who expected his followers to, and I quote, realize Christ within their own consciousness. That is not biblical Christianity. That's blatant New Age teaching. It's the lie. I mean, there's no way you could listen to that and compare it to the Bible and say that that is biblical Christianity. It is the lie that Satan told even the garden. It's come into the church. It's being Christianized and fed to God's people who for the most part are biblically illiterate because people just don't take the time to study the scriptures like they used to. We have too many opportunities for entertainment and, uh, and activities and TV, and everything else. And so people don't take the time like they used to to study the scriptures, to show themselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. They don't do that. They just trust their pastor to, to tell them the truth. And they're not Bereans. Most Christians do not go home from church and take the word out and make sure that the things that their pastors have told them is really in line with what God has said in his word. Because of that, people are buying into all kinds of things that are not biblical Christianity. Then, of course, there's London's St. James Anglican Church just off Piccadilly Square, a well-known tourist attraction that has become a gathering place for New Age types. The church offers regular meetings of, and I'm just quoting a brochure of theirs, yoga meditation class, health for the New Age through meditation and visualization, lifetime astrology, and one that caught my eye, one entitled, Personal Religion Beyond Dogma, <laughs> Beyond Scripture. Don't ask God to bear your cross, but find your God within. M. Scott Peck, a psychiatrist who claims to be a Christian, wrote a couple of best-selling books a few years ago. One was called People of the Lie, interesting title, and the other was called The Road Less Traveled. Both of these books appeared on a leading evangelical magazine's book of the year list, finishing 7th and 6th, respectively. Book selections in this particular Christian magazine were determined by the votes of a group of evangelical writers, leaders, and theologians. Now, let me just tell you this. It really doesn't disturb me that every once in a while, some guy or some gal who calls himself a Christian comes out with a book that is nothing more than blatant occultism or New Age teaching dressed up in pseudo-Christian terms. That doesn't bother me. I know what's going to happen. Jesus warned us about these kind of things. There, there are tares among the wheat, right? Among God's people, there are going to be false disciples, counterfeit Christians. We know that. You know what really disturbs me, though? What really makes my blood boil is when these people come out with these blatant occultic or New Age books that Christian writers and leaders and theologians endorse them. And I think to myself, God help us. 
is God said, like priest, like people in the Old Testament. What did he mean? He meant that a people will never rise generally above the level of their leadership. And that's why God puts a, such a high standard upon leadership. Because he knows as the leaders go, so go the people. And it really troubles me to see Christian leaders and writers and theologians endorsing books that you don't have to be a genius to look at and go, this is not Christianity. Where are these folks coming from who endorse these books? You say, well, what was contained in these so-called Christian bestsellers, quote-unquote? Well, I'll give you one little excerpt from one of Peck's books. He writes, For no matter how much we may like to pussyfoot around it, all of us who postulate a loving God and really think about it, really think about it eventually come to a single terrifying idea. Here it is. God wants us to become himself or herself, or itself, we are growing toward godhood. You tell me this lie has not come into the church and is being embraced in some big ways. The church has embraced the lie of the serpent and is now calling it biblical Christianity. Oh, and by the way, the serpent was right. When he promised Eve godhood, he was right. He forgot to tell her, though, or purposely did not tell her, that she would not become God with a big G. She'd become a God with a little g, a false God. She'd become a pretender after godhood, a grasper after godhood, a usurper of the authority that belonged to the only one and true God who, who was to exercise that authority over her life. And that is the problem today. We have a world populated with roughly 5 billion little gods. Everyone doing their own thing. Everyone trying to impose their will on somebody else's life. So if I have a sexual need and you can meet that need, whether you like it or not, I'm going to fulfill that need with you. As you see men molesting women or children. You see CEOs who say, who feel that, they deserve to be multi-multi-millionaires, even if it means bilking the company, sucking all the profits out, and the people that have been working there for 25 or 30 years, tough luck. So we have a world of people who are little gods, all running around doing their own thing and imposing their selfish wills on everybody else. But this is nothing new. The desire to act independently of God, to make decisions according to our own desires, and to live lives without any of God's laws was at the heart of man's rebellion against God in the beginning and it continues to be the driving force in the human heart to the present time. It is nothing less than self-worship. The very thing that Satan chided Eve into buying into, it's self-worship. Don't worship God. Don't obey God. He hasn't got your best interest at heart, Eve. Go ahead and eat that fruit. You'll be awakened. You'll have You'll be enlightened. You'll become like God. You don't have to live according to God's rules. Be your own God. Worship yourself. One author put it this way. What does self-worship look like? Whenever a person believes their comfort is more important than God's glory, that is self-worship. Whenever a person believes that God wills their happiness over their holiness, that is self-worship. Whenever a person acts as if God is their servant boy, that is self-worship. 
Whenever Christianity is seen as man-centered rather than God-centered, self-worship is looming. Whenever we think that we know better than God what's best for our lives and then make decisions on our own without seeking His will, decisions that are meant to bring us pleasure instead of bringing God glory, we are following in the footsteps of our first parents, Adam and Eve. But listen to me. This is one verse every Christian should memorize, Jeremiah 10, verse 23, where Jeremiah said, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Why? Because as God went on to or said earlier, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. And if we base decisions out of our own hearts, what happens is our hearts will mislead us because they will always move us towards selfishness and not Christ-centeredness. In contrast to that, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, we read these words, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. That's the Christian life, or it should be, that we don't trust in our own judgment, but we lean totally on him with all of our heart, in everything acknowledging him. Lord, you're the God of my life. You're in control. I've got this decision to make. Lord, lead me. I want to do things that glorify you. That's acknowledging God. And if you do that, he will direct your paths. The sad thing is that when I see Christians who are making important life decisions without, with little or no prayer. We give him lip service. We say, oh, you're Lord of my life. Then when important life decisions come our way, we do what we feel is right. Or we have the two or three job offers, and we choose the one that's going to give us the most money. Because it's obvious that's the one God wants for me, isn't it? Not necessarily. He wants the one that's going to provide the most opportunities for you to be a witness to glorify Him. That may be the one that pays the least. When we refuse to follow the Lord and obey Him and make decisions that please ourselves and not Him, the result is always heartache and pain. Listen to what God says to the prophet Hosea in chapter 10, verse 13. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Why? Because you trusted in your own way. Again, there is a way that seems right to a person. But in the end thereof is the way of death. We cannot make decisions for our lives based on our own human understanding because we don't know what's coming down the road. God does. God does. God wants us to follow him. You know, I think of Peter. You remember how that at one point, Peter denied the Lord three times and went out and wept bitterly. And the Lord went to the cross the next day and, uh, and uh, on the third day rose from the dead. Well, after he rose from the dead, he uh, kind of hung around the earth for 40 more days, appearing to the disciples at different times. One time they were up by the Sea of Galilee fishing. They had fished all night, caught nothing. In the morning, they saw somebody standing on the bluff, and he called out to them, children, have you caught anything? You know how that goes. Fishing, people always ask you that. 
And they said, no, we haven't caught anything. Well, why don't you cast your net on the right side of the boat, which they did, and immediately it was so filled with fish they couldn't even draw it into the boat. John said, it's the Lord. And Peter jumped into the Sea of Galilee and began to swim for shore. And you remember the story. When he got there, the Lord already had some fish, uh, you know, on the fire cooking. And then he addressed Peter. Peter had denied him three times, so the Lord asked him three times, Peter, do you really love me? And he restored Peter. And then he said this in verse 18, verses 18 and 19. He said to Peter, he said, Most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, to Peter, follow me. Follow me, Peter, all the way to the cross. As the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. See, what Jesus was saying to Peter is this. Peter, when you were a young man, before you knew me, you did what you wanted to do. You went where you wanted to go. You were in control of your life. But now that you're my disciple, I'm going to lead you places that you're not going to really want to go necessarily in your flesh. Difficult places. In fact, Peter, I'm going to lead you to a cross. And when you get older, they're going to stretch your hands out. Literally, Peter was crucified. They're going to stretch your hands out, and they're going to crucify you. But you come and follow me. And folks, Jesus tells each one of us, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now, we, it may obviously won't mean a literal cross. It just means that we need to die to our will and our desires and what we want. Stop looking at God as my servant to fulfill all my desires, make me happy. And I realize that, Lord, you're my Lord and God, and I want to follow you, even if it means suffering, even if it means total denial of everything I've always wanted in life. I'm your servant now, and I will follow you wherever you lead. Can I just say this? The Christian life in a nutshell, in a nutshell, is learning to stop trying to be the God of your life and start surrendering control of your life to the one and only true God. You see, way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they fell. And every one of their children born after them was born with a sin nature. And rooted at the heart of that sin nature was rebellion and self-will. Rebellion against what God wants us to do and the desire to do what I want to do. Wasn't that really what motivated Adam and Eve? And they passed that down to all of us. You know, you moms who have real little children, do you have to teach your kids how to be selfish? How to throw temper tantrums when they don't get their way? How to say, mine, when it comes to their toys? Of course not. That's instinctive, isn't it? What you've got to teach them is to be unselfish. To be generous, to be obedient. Yes, they're sweet. Yes, they're little angels. But they're fallen angels. <laughs> and they need to be taught 
Train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, what is the, the Hebrew means when they've got whiskers, when they reach adulthood, they will not depart from it. But you've got to train him. And when we get saved, we bring this fallen, rebellious, selfish nature into our Christianity. And God begins a work in our hearts from that instant we accept Christ. And it goes on through the rest of our lives. And it's all about getting us to get off of the throne of our hearts, to stop being the God of our lives, to stop being in control and doing what we want to do, and to begin to relinquish more and more control to Him. It's all about surrendering our life to Him. That's what the whole Christian life is in a nutshell. Now, some Christians do not get very far from where they started because they're not willing to let go of self. And so they try to sanctify their selfishness. They begin to gravitate to churches that have pastors who will tell them that, oh, no, 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 you don't have to deny yourself. You're a little God. God wants you to be rich. He wants you to drive the nicest car on the block, live in the biggest house, have the biggest bank account, and so on. How do you think those churches do? They do well. Very large. It's a sign of the last days. People do not want to hear about the cross anymore. That's sound doctrine. They want to gather to themselves teachers because they have evil, sinful, selfish desires who will tell them what they want to hear. The whole Christian life is learning to stop being the God of our lives and learning to surrender control of our lives to God. This time of year... The one organization that we see quite a bit of is the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army was founded by William Booth. Well, years ago, an American evangelist named J. Wilbur Chapman was in London. This is going back several, several years, many years. He had an opportunity to meet with General Booth, who at that time was past 80 years of age. Dr. Chapman listened reverently as the old general spoke of the trials and the conflicts and victories that he had experienced over many, many years of ministry. The American evangelist then asked the general if he would disclose the secret for his success. He hesitated a second, Dr. Chapman said, and I saw the tears come into his eyes and steal down his cheeks, and then he said, I will tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, men with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with the poor of London, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, in all the influence of my life. Dr. Chapman said he went away from that meeting with General Booth knowing that the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. Folks, there are two choices a person has in living their life. They can act like little gods and live a self-centered, self-willed, self-controlled life or they can get off the throne of their life, invite Jesus Christ to come and sit down and surrender control to him. Those are the only two choices. Either you're going to be the God of your life, or God Almighty is going to be the God of your life. It's possible to be a true Christian 
and yet never really let go of your life to the point where God really takes everything, where he really takes full control. We, we give him lip service that we want him to. Sometimes we'll kind of like, okay, Lord, here's the steering wheel of my life. Uh, go ahead and take it. Ah, you know, as, as, we, as we see him kind of moving us in a certain, grab that wheel and get, oh, get back on where we want to go. As long as he's guiding us where we want to go, oh, praise the Lord. This is wonderful. Isn't God good? When he starts steering off the path that we want to go, we get very nervous. What's he doing? This isn't what I want to do. This isn't where I want to go. And God says, I know. It's where I want to go with your life. And I think part of the problem is there's too much wilderness still, I think. Some Christians are trying to serve two masters. They're trying to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and trying to serve the world as well. And they're trying to, kind of trying to do both. And Jesus, and Jesus himself said, you can't serve two masters. So you've got to choose this day, as Joshua said. Choose this day. Who are you going to serve? You're going to either serve the gods of the flesh, the gods of this world, which are all trying to tell you to do your own thing, go your own way, or you're going to choose to serve the God of heaven who says, follow me. It's not going to be easy. There are going to be some difficult times. There's a cross in it, but it's the narrow way which alone will lead to everlasting life. It grieves my heart to see people who are Christians making serious life decisions based on little or no prayer. What is that all about? Just today, this week, I heard another story. A young lady who started dating a non-believer. Her pastor warned her this was not a wise road to go down. It was something that God said she was not to do. So what does she do? She doesn't accept the correction. She stops coming to church. That's what we do, don't we? We don't want to hear it. We just stop coming to church. And she went ahead and married this guy after a few weeks. Now, she's convinced that she's going to bring him to Jesus. And you know what? For her sake, I really, and his, I really hope she's right. But that doesn't justify the disobedience. Just because God is gracious and sometimes, even though we disobey, makes good come, doesn't justify the sin. And, truth be told, there's a lot of people who have entered into marriage with an unbeliever with that mentality that are absolutely miserable today. We, every time we try to be the God of our life, we mess it up. Turn control over to the God who is truly God, and he will lead you in the right paths. Not always the easiest paths, but the right paths. It's up to us. As the people of God, I think oftentimes we cheat ourselves because we just don't trust that God has our best interests at heart. We don't really trust him because we don't really know him. We haven't taken the time to really spend time with him in the word, getting to know him, and consequently, we don't really believe in our heart of hearts, although we would never say it this way, we don't really believe in our heart of hearts that he really knows what's best for our lives or that if I really let go and give him total control, he is going to lead my life in the best paths. And that's sad. Because I think a lot of Christians, when they get to heaven, are going to realize that they cheated themselves because they never really trusted God fully. In a sense, they bought into the lie of the devil. Not, please, don't misunderstand me. I could see that all of you in this room pretty much, when I talked about churches teaching that we are gods, you recoiled and gasped. I know that you don't believe that theology. 
And yet, sometimes we act with that mentality because we still kind of try to be the God of our own life. And God is saying, until you let go and let me take full control and you surrender completely to me, you will never know what I will do or can do through you. As Paul said, he is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything we could ask or think. But we have to let go to find out what he can do through us. And so may God help us to do that. Because only when we surrender can we really know his power and his love and his grace. Don't hold on any longer. Surrender your life. Let go. Let, don't be afraid of what God wants to do. Nobody loves you more than he does. Nobody has your best interests at heart more than him. Eternally best interests. May God help us to truly surrender to him. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you are a good and gracious God who loves us so much that you sent your son to die for us. We need never be afraid of where you want to take our lives, Lord. We need never worry that you don't have our best interests at heart. We know that you do. Lord, help us to surrender completely to you in every area of our lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name.